Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast. Today, Clarissa and Molly sit down with Cynthia Myers Morrison. With 50 years of sobriety from alcohol and 25 from sugar, Cynthia has quite the personal story to tell. She's also a food addiction counselor with training from the International Food Addiction Training Program, In Fact, and is a sugar practitioner. Along with David Wolf, she is co-author of The Fix for Cravings, Ones That Didn't Work, and Now One Which Works. She is also a longstanding member of the Board of Food Addiction Institute and is busy trying to get food addiction approved in the upcoming DSM-5. Today, we cover her personal aha moment, what recovery has looked like over the last 50 years if she's willing to share about her experience in the 12-step programs, her hopes and dreams, telling us about the book, and what we need in order to be successful. Welcome, Cynthia. Okay, we are so excited to have Cynthia here today to talk about her personal journey, about her profession, working with some of the genealogy and family. And can you give us just a little introduction about yourself and then kind of talk to us about your food addiction journey and level like the journey to sobriety for you? All right. I am Cynthia Myers Morrison. And I'm so delighted to be here with you, Molly and Clarissa. Thank you. And thank you for all of your work in the field of food addiction. What a gift you are, each of you individually and collectively to this field. So thank you. I am a person that started with history of addictions, but they were silent. No one spoke about them. They didn't talk you know, no talk rule. And so there were a lot of things in our family that weren't discussed. And I didn't know that I didn't know that some of the things that happened were directly related to food and alcohol and drugs and sex and love addictions and cigarettes and workaholism. Oh, don't let me forget about that one. (laughs) (laughs) That one's such a, such a mild mannered one. It seems so plain and ordinary and oh no that couldn't possibly be a problem and it nearly killed me nearly killed me so let me talk about some of the things i have several master's degrees i like going to school i have an earned doctorate in education and i've written drafts for three books now two of which are published one with my name and another and we'll talk about that a little bit later the fix for cravings and i've been involved with writing for a variety of different places and organizations including food addiction institute which is one of my beloved organizations so let me tell you my personal recovery story and how i got to be who i am right now this person because I was not always this person. I used to be 
quite different in a, a number of iterations. So I'll tell you some about that and how I made those transitions to come to who I am today so that if you want to make transitions, if you want to be transformed, if you want to have changes truly in your life, you can make them. I can tell you how I made them and you can discern from my story how you can make them too. So, okay, then go with my story. That was beautiful. Yes, I'm excited. I'm ready. Ready. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I was born in 1946. So just at the end of World War II, my father had come back from the war. His plane had been shot up. He was not injured, but the plane was off the Florida coast, which was one of those places where those things didn't happen. P-boats weren't out there. Oh, yes, they were. And he came back and he was the GI Bill and he and my mother were both going to school in Montana. And I was in Bozeman where Molly is. And I love that about our connection. (laughs) I was born where Molly lives. So a special heart to heart. So at early days, my mother had a wood burning stove for the warming of the house. And she had a wood burning stove for cooking on. And I said, that was in my lifetime. Really? And it was, it was. Now she had lived in a house that had a regular stove prior to that, but at the Quonset huts and in the winter in Montana, they had what they had. And that was just right at the end of World War II. So my dad flew also in Korea and he also flew in Vietnam. So he had a lot of people shooting at him and and his shooting at others in some circumstances. And he was affected by that. He died at 75 years of age. My mother, on the other hand, is almost 98 years old. So I have longevity genes, good genes. G-O-O-D-E is the name of the family, because I know from the genealogy that that's the place that I have the longevity. So I have the potential to live a really long life if I take care of myself. And there are already a number of people in our family that have died because we didn't take care of ourselves. So that's part of the story. The taking care of myself with my mother's point of view was having a variety of colors on the plate, proteins and vegetables, and usually a carbohydrate. And there were desserts, but they weren't often. They were special occasion things. So I started out pretty much in the right direction, (laughs) but that was the best of the knowledge at that time. Today, we know from Dr. Lustig, Robert Lustig's book, Metabolical, how devastating sugar is in our society and in our food. And it is not necessary for anybody to eat any sugar at all, ever. (laughs) So but we didn't know that then. And the carbohydrates that were eaten were perhaps different then than they are now, 74 years later, because I'm 74 years old today. And you know that's a long time down the road. And we have GMOs, we have all sorts of things that have happened in between to our food supply, in addition to high fructose corn syrup, which is, is something none of us needs either. So When my mother was feeding us, she was doing the very best that she could. And we had treats. We had sweets. My grandmother loved to bake and make things when we were coming. And she would make things that I have not had for at all for 23 years. 
in abstinence. And she would lay them out on flat surfaces all the way around the kitchen. And we would eat our way through them. They were straight up things I don't eat anymore at all. But we would eat those. And we were active kids. We, My grandfather built a swimming pool in the backyard because he could, and he did. And the grandchildren came. We wanted to be at his house. <laughs> so we were actively swimming, and diving, and having contests in the swimming pool, all of those kinds of things, running around chasing and trying to capture fireflies. I mean, active young people. And yet, as I grew older, I got rounder and rounder because I was a child that could not tolerate carbohydrates, sweets in the way that that some other people did. My mother, for example, she's the only one in our family that was not desirous of sweets. She had a couple of things that she would hide, not because she needed to hide them for herself, but because she needed to hide them from us. We as a family, wanted her sweets and would steal them. So those are some of my earliest memories of stealing food and beverages, alcoholic beverages that I knew I wasn't supposed to have. And I took them anyway. And I took them at age four or five off of the table, the coffee table and ate and drank them. And I remember knowing that it wasn't okay. It was not right. It was wrong. So my earliest memories were lying, cheating, and stealing. So there we go. Because when my mother and dad came in, they could see that things were not the way they had went out to say goodbye to the guests. And I didn't want to own up that I had taken those things, but there wasn't anybody else in the house. <laughs> so it was I. <laughs> so that's the beginning. Now I ate sweets. I liked them. I liked the things that are in movie theaters, especially my father made those. Those are still things that are connected to love. They're connected to relationships. And so that food item, quote unquote, it was a substance. It wasn't food for me was meaning to be love. It was meant in a loving way. It was meant to convey, I care about you. And these are the ways that I express my caring. We need to figure out different ways to do that in activities, in shared gardening. I mean, my sister and I are gardening today. And the garden that we share, the food that comes from that garden, the process of planting the seeds, watching them grow, watering, picking, harvesting, cleaning, freezing, all of those things are shared love as well. And that's a very different kind of love than the one that I grew up with. So that was very substance related, related to the things that I don't eat anymore. So how did all this change? I struggled with food. I had emotional stressors from moving as often as we did. We were an Air Force family and we moved about every year to three years. And I had to make new friends and be in a new Girl Scout troop and all of those kinds of things. Things that my mother and dad supported, the Girl Scouts activities we participated in, shared family events and getting together with family. But there was always a lot of food involved or substances that they called food. And those were the things that I remembered about all of that. It wasn't helpful to my body. And I struggled mentally, emotionally, physically with the outcomes. I wasn't grossly obese. I was just chubby, 
little chunky. It was in the years of Twiggy. Had it been in the years of J-Lo, maybe it would have been a little different, but it was Twiggy. And that's a whole different era, a whole different model of how you're supposed to look. And I did not look like that. I looked more like J-Lo, but that was a different era. So I tried to diet. I tried to not eat through the day. I tried all sorts of things that were not successful for me. And finally, I had graduated from high school. I'd gone off to college. I'd gained weight immediately at college. I had a muumuu that I liked and lived a lot in in my early college days because it had no fettering influence. It just flowed around me. And I was eating the things that meant love to me. And I was eating them a lot, even though it was not provided by the people that had loved me with those things before. I was doing it to myself. And when I came home from school, I had gained 15 to 30 pounds in the course of my freshman, sophomore years. I dieted to get thinner so that I could get married in a wedding gown that was beautiful. And between my junior and senior years in college. And then I took diet pills. I took a lot of diet pills. I loved them. I adored them. They were my favorite thing because I could have energy. I could have this kind of energy, but all the time based on diet pills. And I had a diet doctor that was just down at the corner and he was quite willing to continue to give them to me even after I was emaciated, even after I looked at myself in the bathtub and thought, oh my God. I had that moment of clarity of this is not how my body should look. There's something terribly wrong. And the information came out about the rainbow diet pills and how devastating they were to people. And I cold turkey stopped. That's how much I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to be healthy. I was an English major and reading Vanity Fair, which about that thick. And I couldn't lift the book to read both sets of pages. I would lie on the floor and I'd read every other page because that was all I could hold the book up. Just the vertical part could go up and I'd read this part, but I couldn't lift the book. I had not the energy to do that. That's how devastated it was. I was. So that wasn't a good success. By this time, I was also drinking excessively considerable amounts and I had gotten married and The man with whom I was married was a very successful person who was moving up in the world, and he was invited to an event, but he didn't invite me. Spouses were invited, but he did not invite me because he knew how I behaved when I was in my addictions. And so I wasn't invited, and I learned later that others had been invited, and I was disappointed. I was horrified that my drinking and using of other substances had come to that in our relationship and had harmed our relationship in that way. I was a rageaholic because I know now that has to do with blood sugar problems, but I didn't know that then. And I would just rage for no reason. I thought no reason at all. And I would try to explain to him that it wasn't that I disliked him or was upset with him or anything. I just was a rageaholic. And that had to do with my blood sugar, which I learned later. You know, I had 
all these kinds of things that were emotional. And I went to therapy and therapists tried to help me. And my parents tried to help me. My siblings tried to help me. My husband tried to help me. And I was helpless, powerless over the substances that were going into my body and creating the difficulties that I had. So what happened? We went to Peru in the Peace Corps. We lived in a small community where I was acting out. And he was a professor at a small college, liberal arts college, not a good thing for a wife to be behaving in these ways. And I was a sex and love addict, a food addict, an alcohol, drugs of various kinds that were available in the late 60s. We went to Peru. I was much more cautious there because I was told in training that we could be locked up and never released from the Peruvian prisons. And I was very cautious about what I was doing there. So I mostly was drinking, but I drank a great deal and drank regularly and often and sweet beverages. And I messed up my stomach so badly. My biome, they didn't talk about biomes then, but my biome was alcohol coated and it wasn't functioning well. So I could eat some carbohydrates. That's all I could tolerate and more booze. And that was it. I did eat langostinos. Langostinos are crayfish in translation, but I thought it was lobster. (laughs) Oh, well, whatever. But that was about the only thing that I could tolerate. So it was not a healthy situation. And we came back from Peru separately. And that was the first really important relationship that had just ended as a result of my use and abuse of substances. What happened subsequent to that was that I was a couple of years of just floundering. I'd gotten a job and I was working with Los Angeles Unified School District and I was fired before I even taught the first day, but that was not uncommon at that time. And so there were upsets. There were real, real life upsets that were happening. But what happened then was that I was thoroughly involved in my inappropriate behaviors in addition to working as a teacher. And I loved my kids. I had such a good time with the students and they taught me so many things. I was a quick study at Black English and I was teaching standard English. So my students were not as quick a study as I was the reverse, you know, so it was not working out exactly right. But I had the opportunity to learn so many things about the population of people that with whom I was teaching at that time. And I've had a recent letter just from someone who said how much their specific personal life had been influenced by me and that their love of language, their love of literature had carried on till now, 50 some years later. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, to receive that all these years later is is very touching. And I know that I did make a difference. Other people have told me that over the years. So it wasn't all dark, but I was dark. I would lose weight. I would gain weight. I would rage. I just had no tolerance for emotional growth and continuity in relationships. I had short little serial relationships, S-E-R-I-A-L variety. (laughs) So what happened? I had a series of strange circumstances. Some people call them miracles where I ended up in a swingers party. 
And from the swingers party, I ended up in two 12-step programs, one for food and one for alcohol in 1971. I stayed in the one for alcohol because they told me I was going to die if I didn't. And so I I have now 50 years you can see my 50, uh, 50 years of recovery in a 12-step program for alcohol. But at the same time, I had the same piece of paper from a different named program, 12-step, that I use today and that I have used for the last 23 years. But for the 27 years prior to that, I didn't want to use it. I wanted to find some easier, softer solution that didn't involve abstinence in the same way that we talk about abstinence from alcohol and drugs. I didn't want that. I wanted something else, anything else. And believe me, I tried. I tried lots and lots of things. So if it involved sun lamps or it involved lying nude on the beach, if it involved whatever it involved, I was willing to try it. (laughs) So. I have a rather colorful story as a result. However, for 27 years, I was involved with all sorts of people, some of them famous. There were famous people that were attracted to how I looked, how I acted, how I was. And at the same time, there were people that I met in odd circumstances where One guy, I met him while he was on his way to apply for a National Institute of Health or Drug and Alcohol, some one of those big name titles. And he sent me afterwards a little tape in the days of tapes that said, ain't misbehaving now, because he was affirming to me that even though I had done all these things previously, that now I had a reasonable life. And I did. I did at times, but intermittently, because I couldn't consistently do anything because of the food. As soon as I went back into the grains and sugar for me, I went back into the grains and sugar, I would be off and running again and gaining weight and losing weight and gaining weight and losing weight. And intermittent fasting when it wasn't even known that that's what it was. I just made these things up and I would do them. So I finally ended up in the two programs. One stayed for 27 years and I had a lot of emotional problems during that time. The emotional problems were the most serious. I did many degree programs. I have, as I mentioned, four master's degrees and a doctorate. And I did those while I was doing everything else because they kept my mind active and I had something on which to focus besides teaching and besides the food. Those were my two loves. I had other intermittent loves, but (laughs) those were the two biggest ones. So in 23 years ago now, I had an instance where I was going to die that day because I was going to take my own life. I had been suicidal at other times and had had instances where a woman had reached out to me and said how she had come to be in a wheelchair and I was going to suicide that day years before, but she reached out her hand and she said, the way that I got into the wheelchair was that I tried to kill myself and it didn't work. My name is Cindy. And I thought, oh, I don't think I'll try and kill myself today. (laughs) I wasn't going to do that. So I had had instances like that. I had had 
a lot of therapy. I had had a lot of work on trauma because I had been molested as a young child. And I had been in situations and therapy situations where they'd say, well, if you resolve the trauma, you'll be able to do blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, wow, yes. And that wasn't the solution. I did work on the trauma and with some of the best trauma people in, in the world. And when those things are resolved significantly, I mean, I don't know if they're ever gone entirely, but significantly, really at peace with what happened. And that person made mistakes. And probably somebody who molested that person made mistakes. And that I was blessed by the fact that his wife was in the examining room with me when I was examined by a doctor. And did I know that? I didn't know that until 50 years later, 60 years later, many, many years later. But I suspect that's why the molestation stopped as suddenly as it started. So I had blessings in my life. I had a Girl Scout leader that was just wonderful and tried to put these puzzle pieces that I am back together. And she and her husband were blessings in my life and her two sons as well. And I had sponsors and mentors and master teachers and principals who cared about me and wished me well. But the missing piece for me was that I was still trying to cut out the sugar, but not cutting out grains. And grains are, Dr. Vera Tarman talks about, close cousin to sugar. I had to cut out the grains in order to be free. Now, there are other things that I've cut out over the years, intervening years, but the grains had to go at the same time as the sugar for me to be free. That isn't true, I don't think, for everyone. But if people are having trouble getting rid of sugar from their eating plans, I believe that grains are the next, next thing to go. And that by letting them go completely and utterly, completely, that the relief is so great the body system changes, the biome system changes, everything. My brain chemistry changed. Suddenly, I didn't have the foggy brain that I had had for most of my life. I didn't have, I could see clearly. And I'd looked around at my life and went, who made this life? It was the life I had been working on for years to attain. But it wasn't the life I wanted. (laughs) I went, this isn't the life I want. No. And in that year subsequent to my letting go of all grains and sugar when I was 51 years old, 51. So I've been striving to acquire the accomplishments that I wanted and had. And then I let that all go. And in that next year, I moved across the country. I got married to my third husband. And I had had a wife of 14 years in there also. So a lot of things changed. I had been working steps and working on traditions and concepts. So, you know, I've been an active 12-step person for all of my life. I mean, from the time I was 24 years old till now. However, the clarity that I gained by having no grains and sugar was so amazing. I mean, it was just like things were crystal clear. I could see just like, you know, when I've gone to the Caribbean And the water is this amazing clarity, clear. You can see the white sand underneath, just like it's right there. That's the kind of clarity that I had. 
and continue to have. So, and then consistency. Consistency is something that I didn't have before. And that as soon as I let go of the grains and sugar, I had consistency because I was in a a structured program. Now, I talk about structure because Dan Siegel, Dr. Dan Siegel talks about mindfulness and the river of integration. And on one side is chaos and on one side is this rigidity and not to slosh up too high on the chaos or the rigidity, just try to stay in the river of integration and flow. And that image is one that is really helpful to me. It pleases me to think of it. And when I am in the flow, I feel that flow. I feel that peacefulness. I feel the calm. I don't feel the rage that I once felt. I don't feel the rigidity. The need for rigidity is not there. The need for chaos, which I sought a lot, (laughs) it's not there. So I can be in that flow and to have the consistency to work on other things. One of the things that I was able to work on um, soon after I got abstinent within the first year or year and a half was a migraine situation that I had had for 40 years. Now, 40 years of migraines, as severe as mine were, they were decimating. Close to the end, I injured my L3 and 4 by vomiting with the pain of the migraines. And I also had inguinal nerve damage where I numbed out the top half of my leg from groin to knee, where I couldn't feel when they were putting needles in my leg. We're talking significant damage separate from the fact that I was vomiting and couldn't keep food in me and just had these headaches that I wanted to die. Now, something in my family is a familial piece because my mother had trigeminal nerve disease, which is called the suicide headaches. And my sister had, the one who has since died, had cluster headaches. And my other sister doesn't have any migraines, no headaches, but her daughter and her granddaughter both do. So we have some kind of issue in our family that is familial. But I had to find out that there were things that I could do, even with abstinence, that could eliminate these things. And I, it took time. I found some vitamins, some supplements, some doctors that suggested one set of things, and then somebody else, another doctor who added on to that. But all of those things came together. I have not had migraines for most of the last 23 years. I did have a little bout with them when I started to add lemon juice. And I had read that that was a healthy thing to do. Healthy. So I was trying to add lemon juice. And I went to the doctor and I said, I'm starting to have migraines again. What has happened? He said, what did you change? What did you do differently? Those are important questions. And when you're writing down what you eat, when you ate it, and what the results were, you can see pretty quickly, pretty clearly, oh, lemon juice. And he went, yes, that's a citrus. And some people have troubles with citrus, with migraines. I went, oh, okay. Another one of mine was tyramine. So if I leave food in the refrigerator for three days, I can no longer eat it because the amount of tyramine that has built up in that food, just as a result of it being in the refrigerator, is sufficient for me to be triggering the headaches. And I don't want to do that. So I'm very cautious about freezing the food into the freezer, it goes. And those are easy solutions. But I didn't know that tyramine was a problem. 
And yet when I looked at it, that is an easy fix. Histamine. There are all sorts of different things. I have one friend, one of my neighbors in Pennsylvania who had serious, serious issues and continues to this day. She's in her 90s now. And her story is in The Fix for Cravings, where she figured out that the reason she had heart palpitations had to do with her individual idiosyncratic response to particular food items or the substances on which they were lying, the little paper plastic thing that the meat relies on, she can't tolerate that. It has to be meat that's not touched that. Cucumbers that haven't been sprayed and waxed and potatoes that she does eat potatoes that haven't been sprayed with no green, whatever that is. And all sorts of different things that she recognizes are triggers for her body to create palpitations and the potential of death for her. So how does she figure this out? Very carefully, very attentively, keeping track of what she eats, when she eats it, and what the responses are. And particularly for me, the responses are things like two hours later, if I want more of whatever I just ate two hours before, that is a food I cannot eat. I cannot eat that. I cannot ingest it because it sets up a craving inside of me that is not worth that feeling. It's not worth it. And some of those are ordinary fruits or vegetables that other people have no trouble with, but I do. So each of us has to be our own careful notator of what it is that we're eating, when we're eating it, and what the responses are, how long after. That two-hour window is an important one for me personally, and some people four hours, and sometimes it's two or three days. So you really have to be attentive to noticing what happens afterwards. So I changed my eating 23 years ago because I was going to kill myself that day and went to another 12-step room, which happened to be the same program as I had success with at the very beginning, 50 years ago now, but I didn't want to do it then. And when I was ready to kill myself and had the means and the intention and the plan to do it, that put me smack dab up against, do I want to live or do I want to die? And I chose to live that day just for one day, because a woman came up and said, can you commit one meal? And I did. And at the end of that, committing that one meal within the program of structure that what I would eat, it was far too much food for me. I mean, just an enormous amount of food. It was like, oh, nobody can eat this much food and stay normal sized. You couldn't possibly get normal sized this way. And yet that's exactly what happened. I ate these large meals that were made of different things than I had been eating. <laughs> I tried to make smaller meals, but highly caloric. These were large meals, but with beautiful colors and vibrancy and very filling. And they had protein and they had fat and they had vegetables and I was just like, that was for lunch and dinner. Breakfast had protein and fruit. And I was in awe. I mean, absolutely in awe as the weight melted away from me. And that was my story. It isn't everyone's story at age 51, but it was my story at 51. It was quite an amazing experience. And I continue to eat these large quantities for about 21 years. I wanted every single bit 
that I could eat. And I'll tell you that I had a lot of food. <laughs> A lot of food. So, but about two years ago, now remember, I'm almost 75 years old now. About two years ago, I had the desire to have smaller meals. Eating these huge quantities of food was no longer pleasing to my belly. My belly didn't like it, and I was not wanting it. And I had mentors with whom I spoke regularly, and dietitians, people that had had a lot of training with food related issues and the people in the 12 step programs that to assist me in making the changes and making them very carefully so that that I didn't radically shift everything and get thrown off kilter I didn't get thrown off kilter I just made adjustments 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 and I did increase my protein which was interesting to me at breakfast because I'd been getting fatigued and so I went to these resources that I've had and they suggested additional protein, which I've continued to have for breakfast. And, you know, and it seems to work. Now I've had to continue to work with hormone doctors and gynecologists and endocrinologists. I mean, these are my pals. (laughs) So I don't do any of this alone. And then I run it by the people who are my mentors in terms of the food, because all of these people come together to assist me in dealing with my body. I've studied, I've taken courses with, in fact, the Food Addiction Counselor Training Program through Esther Helga Gudmund-Stortier. And I've studied with Bitten Johnson with the Holistic Medicine for Addiction. I've taken Institute of Integrative Nutrition to have a wide variety of possibilities that are there. But Up until, at least at the time I was taking the courses, they didn't yet include no grain, no sugar. So that's still a difference that I have that is really important to me personally and to the people with whom I interact with food addiction. I've studied trauma with Bessel van der Kolk in a year-long course that was online. That was a wonderful course for learning about trauma and its impact and That's not an easy walkthrough. The Body Keeps the Score is his book, and it's a wonderful, a treasure trove of information about trauma and how to deal with it. And I've watched Bessel van der Kolk over the years because I've studied for various circumstances to be in classes where he was teaching and to watch the changes in terms of his treatment of trauma. So he started over here and made this change and this change and this change. And now he's been talking about learning to dance with others, to sing with others in a choir, to be throwing balls and being in synchronicity, receiving and sending the ball and talking and laughing and playing, having fun together. And I think so much of what we have done at least in my experience, was that there was something wrong with me that needed to be fixed. Well, maybe not. Maybe there are a whole bunch of things that are already okay and solution-based, that kind of focus on the solution may be a desirable change. So not looking at the problem so much as looking at the solutions. How can we figure out what to do, What, how to help families make better choices about their foods, how to deal with things, all of our institutions. I think, you know, I was thinking about the institutions and thinking about 
our prisons that we need to feed people healthy ways in the prisons. That might make a big difference. If we were to feed people healthy food in the hospital by a new model, a new model with no sugar and maybe no grains, but definitely no high fructose corn syrup, et cetera. What a difference it might make. What about our treatment facilities for drugs and alcohol? I know that Renaissance with Dr. Vera Charman had coinciding treatment where alcohol and, and drug addicts and food addicts were treated in the same location. The food addicts had different food, but there are some treatment facilities where they're removing the soda and sugar-sweetened beverages and you know those kinds of things. In terms of our schools, what can we do with our food in the schools to really make a difference, to change what's happening in the schools and to eliminate all those birthday holiday treats that are not food substances to change those? What about our markets to really get our markets to highlight fresh produce, the proteins, the wide variety of proteins that are possible, the oils that are not seed-based and processed oils, but real oils that many of us eat, butter, coconut oil, olive oil, et cetera, MCT oil. So are these things that we can actually do, that we can change our society by changing the food? Now, I've been told by several people who are in the field that we've been told, well, what we're doing is going to have a, an effect 20 years from now. That's a long time to wait. But when I think about, I was a smoker and I was a smoker and I smoked three packs a day and then breathed the air in Los Angeles too. That was very bad at that time. And my sister wanted me to stop smoking. She had gone to school. She had heard in school in her fourth or fifth grade classroom that cigarettes were evil, wrong. Don't let anybody smoke. She would come and tear up my cigarettes while I was sleeping. I wanted to do harm to her. <laughs> and the people in 12-step recovery rooms, when the first people started talking about cigarettes being something that we needed to get rid of from the rooms, they were received with like, oh, get away from me. Don't do that. Hateful, evil. We don't talk about that. But over the years, 20 years plus, cigarettes are not what they used to be. They are not the acceptable thing that they once were. So my hope is that we as an organization of Food Addiction Institute, that we hear all of the places that we are, that we make a difference by suggesting that there are other alternatives. Some of those alternatives are things like gardening with our kids. I mean, really creating a garden. That's not a bad idea. Flowers. I love the smell of marigolds because those were one of my first flowers I ever planted when I was a little kid. And they still have that freshness of, oh my gosh, I smell these things. I really do. To do things that make us laugh, that make us enjoy each other, to take walks together, to play together, to bicycle together, to do things, the camping, I know there's a camper here or two, going camping and hiking and swimming in lakes and all of these things that are so much interconnecting with nature. I think of my Girl Scout and Brownies and all the other organizations that take children into the wilderness and out and how fun those things are and how much we can learn about ourselves and about others and relationships and creating relationships that are created in friendships, in trust, 
in that kind of moving together to create a whole rather than splitting us apart. I think about the legal cases. And I I brought one of my happy experiences in education was to participate with a professor at a college in California. And he had students who were becoming lawyers. And once a year, I would, for a number of years, I took students of my students to his place of work so that his students could be the judge and the acting lawyers, and my students could be the jurors. And they would give adequate feedback afterwards as to why they voted the way they did, why they made the decisions they did. You got too much in their face and you were mean to them. No, I didn't like that, et cetera, et cetera. They were very straightforward about what they observed. And he told his students, listen very carefully to these junior high middle schoolers because they are thinking and telling you the things that nobody's going to tell you for the rest of your career. So having those kinds of interactions where people come together to share information, share experiences. And I had hoped that he would, at the end of his career, take on the food addiction issues and high fructose corn syrup and all of that, as has been done with some of the poisons put on our food supply over the years. So maybe, well, maybe not, but There are many ways to come at this problem and real information about veganism, vegetarianism. I had stopped eating meat at one point and for six years did not eat any meat at all. And then I went to a doctor and the doctor said I had to stop eating meat. And I said, oh, I don't eat meat. He said, well, what do you eat? Your cholesterol is so high. (laughs) And I said, eggs and cheese. He said, you can't just eat eggs and cheese. <laughs> you know, I ate a lot of vegetables too, but eggs and cheese were the only protein source. So more research about these things, more information about what all of our different solutions have come to be. Nicola Vina and her rat studies are wonderful resources for us. The Ashley Gerhardt's work, I want her to include grains. She includes fat and she includes sugar, but what happens to all that other stuff that's in there mixed in with those? I want her to look at those. My sister, who's a scientist, says, well, she can't talk about everything all at the same time. She has to look at one thing at a time. And I thought, okay, well, let's get on with the grains by somebody. Our field is coming together with more information about the overlapping and intertwining of eating disorders, as well as food addiction. That food addiction may be, and it's been referred to as the missing link, that with the eating disorders, I am a binge eater. I am also a compulsive eater. I am also, in addition to that, a food addict. And I have, when I take certain tests that are available, I have scored very high on anorexic behavior at some times and bulimic behavior only once. Bulimia caused me to have two very dark black eyes the first time and the only time I practiced it. So I don't do that one, but all the others are ones that I've certainly attempted, certainly had as part of my repertoire. And all of that time was food addiction mixed in. And that's why moderation doesn't work for me. It truly doesn't. It is, 
I need 100% abstinence from my trigger foods and trigger behaviors, my trigger substances. The substances sometimes are not food at all, but there are some foods, as I've mentioned throughout here, that there are triggers for me for the migraines or other things. The trigger behaviors, though, if I hear myself say that someone betrayed me, that is a trigger. I know that that goes way back to when I was a child and molested. It has nothing to do with this person right here, right now. It has to do with whatever hooked that past experience for me. And I need to address that right away, (laughs) address it. I need to look at love and sex addiction for years. Those created great torments in my life. I mean, I, I had many experiences where I was abstaining and abstaining from a variety of behaviors and then would throw in the towel on all of them all in one evening and be back into the food one more time because of the shame, the guilt, the remorse over behaviors that I had engaged in that I had chosen. So making much more clarity about all of those kinds of things and getting support. My life today is much quieter. I have a very peaceful husband. I just ask him today, we have an outstanding gift that someone else is involved with. And I said, you know, do we need to do anything about that right now? He said, no. And I said, well, if the person dies, you know, what then? And he said, well, if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I think this is a kind man. This is a giving man. This is a a person who has a sense of his own well-being and confidence that he can sustain himself. And he has for 78 years. (laughs) And I have that same confidence today and well-being and sense of that as long as I have an abundant array of fresh vegetables and some fruit and a variety of proteins and oils to eat, I'm a pretty happy camper. (laughs) I love my life today because I get to do active things today. I can get up and down off the floor. Unlike some of my age peers, I can go skiing. I can jazzercise. I can do these things today that even when I was 51, I couldn't. I had some arthritis in my fingers, and I hadn't had that for 23 years. You can be sure that I was off to the doctor to get help, to get solutions, to get tests, to find out what is happening, that I'm having these arthritic issues. And I have support to look at these things, to change what I'm doing, to change the supplements, the activities, whatever it is I need to do in order to be free from these things that I don't need to keep in my body. I don't need to maintain a level of negativity. I can move toward the positive. And part of that is attitude. Part of that is having a willingness to do what I can and to accept what I cannot do anything about and to know which of those is true in any particular situations. So I'll close with this part with the fact that, or maybe all of it, I don't know, maybe with the fact that today I heard someone talk about pain and pleasure and patience. And I have a friend who talks often about three Ps. So I very often had pain and pleasure mixed up together in ways that were so unrealistic and unhealthy. 
and sadomasochism is part of my ex life experience as well. So patience with myself to forgive myself for the things that I did that I had choices about, and I made choices that perhaps were not the best choices. Forgive myself for those and make new choices, learn new behaviors, learn new opportunities and take them to live the life that I want to live today. And that each of us can do that, that it isn't ever over until we're in the grave. It's not over. We can still make choices every single day to have the life that we've always wanted, to do the things we've always wanted, to be the person we've always wanted. And so much of that comes directly out of what I put into my body. So I have 100% control still over what goes into this mouth. And most of the time I have 100% control over what comes out of the mouth. So I can make those choices and each of us can. So that's my food and alcohol story. And I hope that it's helpful. It is. It's so helpful, Cynthia. I often give this, I don't know if it's a speech, but certainly I often have this conversation with clients where we talk about when we're in our disease of addiction, it's like a Porsche, right? Or a Lamborghini. It's fast. It's flashy. It's exciting. It's all these things, right? It gets us high. It gets us crazy. It gets us all the, again, it just gets us the things that we think that we want, or at least in the moment, right? It's a distraction and recovery is always like, to me, it's, and it's probably my Montana roots, right? It's a four by four and I'm going slow. Recovery is slow and it's climbing up these rocks and it's like getting stuck and having to get out and like get help to like winch up the trail. It's all these different things. And it's so hard to sell. It's so hard to sell the recovery road because it's hard. It's difficult. It's slow. We have to ask for help. We often can't do it alone, like all those things. But listening to your story today, I'm like, dang, this is the episode I'm now giving to clients to sell recovery because you live it every day in this beautiful way that wasn't always beautiful. I'm sure from day to day, there are still not beautiful moments, but that the overall picture is where you are today is a whole different place than you were when you started 50 years ago, even before that. And I think that is the beauty in it and the leaning in and the embracing and the asking for help and like how you so quickly and readily today are like, whoop, I need help with arthritis. Whoop, I need help with this, that, or the other thing where 50 years ago, you were like, yeah, no, that food program, not for me, you know, or whatever for sure. So I really want to give our listeners the opportunity to hear a little bit more about your book before we wrap up with you. And so I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about the book, who's it for, what does it give readers that they haven't gotten from other books or similar, you know, of a similar topic for those who aren't going to see this, but just listen to it. Will you just tell us like the name of it, how to find it? Give us all the details. It is, the book is called The Fix for Cravings, ones that didn't work and now one which works and it's works in capital letters, The Fix for Cravings. You can create a blissful, contented and purposeful life. And Dave Avram Wolf is one of my colleagues, a registered dietitian with whom I worked on this. And he and I wrote the book. We collected stories. So we have 
the first portion of the book that's probably about a third and then two thirds are stories. And the stories are just an amazing piece of this because they're people with all different kinds of stories. Some of them 10 pounds to lose, some that have food allergies, as I mentioned earlier, and some that suffered, 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 got recovery, lost it, gained it again. I mean, so many different stories. So it is really a book worth reading and the joy that it is to read that. It's a process. The book has in it two eating plans. One of the eating plans is an eating plan that is very similar to mine with the addition of vegan and vegetarian options for proteins and the amounts to eat because sometimes we don't eat enough. That really is what the problem is. We're not eating enough on a consistent basis. And so putting in the quantities very specifically for males, for females, active, inactive, really does help. And those are all here. And then there's another one that is a more keto-like. So there are options there. And it only costs $3.95 if you buy the ebook. So there's no reason not to get it and take a look and read and enjoy the stories. But there also are lots of pieces of information. There are some extended quotes from Dr. Vera Tarman, who was and is the medical director for Renaissance, a treatment facility for alcohol and drugs, and previously also for food. She gives a number of pieces of information in here, which are really, really useful and helpful, and a brief history of food addiction. We talk about various ways to Create a group, a community for yourself if you do not want to join a different community. There are lots of different food programs. There's one alcohol-related program, a little bit of narcotics-related food programs. And then there are a lot of food programs, all with a little different flavor, different things that are excluded, different things that are included, and different attitudes towards food. I am a person who loves my food, and I love eating still. And I have gone through all sorts of different changes, you know, with regard to that. But This creates a process for people to create a little group, a community, and then to meet weekly to talk about your smartest goals, the specific, measurable, agreed, realistic, time-defined, and then ethical, succinctly recorded, and thought out carefully. Because sometimes we ask for what we want, and then we get it, and it's like, oh, that wasn't what I meant. (laughs) My favorite example is asking for water. We wanted water where we were going to live. And we ended up not on the East Coast, not on the West Coast, but by Lake Michigan, which has water, but it wasn't what we were thinking of. (laughs) So be careful what you ask for. But going over those goals weekly, not only one set of goals for food and another set of goals for some other changed behavior that you want to engage in and doing that every week with the same people week after week after week. I'm involved in that kind of a group and have been for over a year now. And it's separate from 12 step and yet so important to me as we continue to each of us grow in our individual ways. And that's a means for the fix for cravings that 
Abstinence from our trigger foods and behaviors is the solution. There isn't any other solution. The AA Big Book has said since 1935, that's the only solution. So it's incumbent upon us to figure out what it is that we actually need to abstain from. And some, like me, need to abstain from sugar and grains. So it's a wonderful book. Lots of good stories. Yeah, and we will absolutely link it in the show notes so that everyone can get a copy. And for $3.95, everyone needs a copy at 100%. So we're going to ask you our signature question, which is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? It would be that abstinence is what works. Moderation doesn't work. Trying to moderate is self-flagellation. And that as a younger self at 24, had I accepted that, I can't even imagine what my life would have been, (laughs) but it wouldn't have been as dark spirited through those next 27 years. So if the mental, physical, emotional, spiritual problems seem to be overcoming one, it's time to find out what one can abstain from in order to have freedom. And the freedom comes, the freedom comes. So powerful, Cynthia. Thank you so much. This whole episode was so inspiring. And just hearing your whole recovery journey, it just makes me feel so much more connected to you. And I'm sure there'll be so many takeaways for our listeners. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Really, truly. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.